Bitwise Bobby. I first started working on refugee issues in 1982. I read in the newspaper about refugee camps in Thailand that were housing refugees from the Vietnam War. I decided, well, I'll go volunteer in one of these refugee camps. I was pretty naive, so I just bought a ticket and went there. And then it turns out that these organizations were looking for like engineers or nurses <laughs> or something. But I, I was fortunate to find a couple of groups that I worked with. One working with women refugees in a big refugee camp in Thailand. And another group from Taiwan that was working with ethnic Chinese refugees. So I taught English classes and then I had kind of like an informal advocacy role where I was helping these refugees because they were afraid they would be repatriated or sent back to their homeland where they believed they would be killed. It was quite desperate. So that was my first experience working with refugees, and it was very rewarding. It was also very eye-opening. I saw how they were living in pretty miserable conditions, particularly for women, I think, you know, with sexual violence, but really for everyone. After that, I came back to the U.S. I went to law school, UCLA Law School. I became a lawyer, came to Seattle. Worked at a big law firm here, and I found a little niche doing employment immigration law. So I worked with a lot of professionals in the IT industries. And actually, because I was in Seattle, it ended up working with like shipping companies, also engineers. I got involved some with family immigration, and then I volunteered a lot as a lawyer. So I did a lot of pro bono cases for asylum seekers from Serbia, from Colombia from Honduras. And since then, I've, I've worked with many people from many countries, you know, probably about 80. So worked in Seattle doing that kind of work. And later we moved to Idaho and it was a whole different clientele. Then I did a lot with farm workers, primarily dairy workers and the undocumented population here. Some people from Central America also, from Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. So I started working with those population groups, which was really rewarding also. My whole career actually has been quite rewarding. I've worked with some wonderful people. I started doing volunteer work with the International Rescue Committee, teaching citizenship classes, and there were people for whom it was proving impossible to pass the test. And most, a lot of older women, people who were traumatized, people who had mental illness, people who had suffered severe trauma, and people who were illiterate in their home countries who'd never had a chance to go to school. Because there is a waiver for the test, but they're very, like, grudgingly given. So... I worked on training other lawyers to work with these populations. So that brought me into contact with people from Africa. So Somalia and Burundi and Congo. Meanwhile, I had also become involved with a trauma education program in East Africa. So I was kind of tapering off on my law practice and I was becoming more involved with uh, peace work in East Africa. I've seen the refugee camps and the average stay in a refugee camp is like 17 years. And there are hundreds of thousands of people. And, and it's not like they're all coming to the U.S. The U.S. takes like a 1% of people. You know, we take a tiny, tiny fraction of people. Poorer countries are handling the vast majority of refugees worldwide. The U.S. is also grappling with some of these issues like on the southern border, but not nearly to the extent that some other countries are like Turkey and Kenya, where they're actually housing on a long term basis, hundreds of thousands of refugees, maybe millions. The other thing is like we're causing a lot of the problems that are creating refugee issues. Whenever we make a determination to 
commenced a military action abroad. I do not feel like they are seriously contemplating what is going to happen to the actual people on the ground. I don't hear the voices of like refugee experts, you know, when we're talking about military action. You know, I hear generals, you know, and I hear politicians, but I don't hear people speaking on behalf of kind of the civilian populations. And what kind of instability is this going to cause in the places where they're fleeing to? At least there should be an analysis of that. You know, maybe there is, but I don't feel like it's being shared publicly. I'm not seeing it. I mean, even today, you know, as people are talking about Russia and Ukraine, we're kind of looking at the political consequences, but I don't feel like we're looking seriously at what's going to happen to the people on the ground. So if somebody finds themselves in a situation where they are now a refugee and they're trying to come to the United States, what's the timeline? The first step is making it from their country, from their home to a refugee camp. I mean, that's how people become refugees in the U.S. for the most part. They get processed through a UNHCR, United Nations High Commission for Refugees Camp. The first step is making it to a refugee camp. That can be extremely dangerous in itself and traumatizing. When my husband tried to escape from Cambodia, he tried to get into Vietnam, which was dangerous, then came back to Cambodia, tried to get into Thailand, and soldiers were shooting at the refugees trying to come in to get to the refugee camp. So that's step number one, is just get to the camp. Number two is getting registered in the camp. And then I think they're interviewed by the United Nations. And then later, various resettlement countries do interview people. So we know the U.S. can't be the resettlement location for all refugees. But what should we do? I think, first of all, most people don't want to be refugees. There's some number of people that want to come to the U.S., you know, that want to improve their lives. But for the vast majority, they would prefer to stay in their home countries with their relatives and and their own culture and their own food and everything. So number one, I'd look and see, are we doing anything anywhere that is increasing the refugee flows? For Mexico and Central America, the cartel activity is absolutely a cause for refugee flow. At least for many of the people that I've talked to, they're fleeing from cartel violence. Some from climate change, where they're not able to grow the food to sustain their families anymore. And that's going to get worse all over the world. So I'm saying look more at the big picture, look at climate change. Look at how we're spending our resources. You know, are we doing things to contribute to climate change? Are we doing things to contribute to drug use, to drug purchases? Are we supporting or not supporting people who are addicted to drugs? Are we supporting the cartels in that way? How much U.S. money is going to cartels? A lot of their funding, anyway, is coming from the U.S. Look at the underlying causes of why people are fleeing from their homes. That's number one. Number two, look at where the refugees are right now. Look at the hosting countries who are hosting the vast majority of them. We should use our best resources, our money and our brain power to address some of those issues, to try to get ahead of it. In terms of how many we take, we should do an analysis, you know, how can we help these countries that are bearing the brunt of these refugee flows? Where people are seeking asylum from Honduras or El Salvador or Guatemala, there's no reason that we should be turning them away to stay in dangerous conditions in Mexico, where we know people are being kidnapped and raped and sold and trafficked and killed. We can do better than that.
We should be able to treat people with dignity and respect, and we should be humane. Some of the conditions that we've kept people in are inhumane. 